Welcome to the weekly podcast of Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. Rick Beeman, chaplain at the Heritage Retirement Home in San Francisco and a member of Epworth United Methodist Church, spoke on Sunday, August 1st, 2010. His sermon was titled, Vanity Thy Name Is. Our concern for each other is most important. The lectionary reading is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 2 and 12 through 14, and chapter 2, verses 18 through 23, and Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. I had the opportunity to uh, preach from Ecclesiastes, and I've had several people say, well, that's not in the lectionary. Well, in fact, there is a uh, common lectionary for all of the churches, and the Ecclesiastes text is in that. My choice, of course, was I could have preached from Hosea, and if you had read the Hosea text, you would think, well, maybe the Ecclesiastes wasn't so bad. Ecclesiastes is a book that's in the Bible, and people kind of wonder why, and it's in the Jewish canon, and included there in part people assume because the first two chapters make reference to Solomon, and so they figure that Ecclesiastes, or must have in the ancient days, figured Ecclesiastes was a text by Solomon and therefore canonical. He really is an existentialist, understanding of God, but he's really an existentialist, asking the question, why are we here? It was similar in the way Camus, and I believe it was in The Stranger, asks a similar question. He says, um, he points out as he's looking at his own life that everything he does has a what's in it for me. And if he's being charitable, the what's in it for me is I get a good feeling out of it. What's in it for me to help the poor, I get a good feeling out of it. And therefore, I still am sinful. It leaves us, though, with a question of why are we here? Can we be whole beings and perfect beings for God? I was reminded of a Bob Newhart show, and I don't know how many people remember Bob Newhart, but um, Bob Newhart was a comedian who was an accountant by trade before becoming a stand-up comedian, and his whole spiel was to be rather uncertain about himself, as you recall, and everybody could kind of push him around, and he'd finally have to take a stand someplace. Well, in this Bob Newhart show, and by the way, he was a psychiatrist by trade. In this Bob Newhart show, he had lost his hope. He had lost his purpose. He had lost his sense of meaning, and so he thought he would go back and find his professor. And the professor was played by Hans Conried, whom you may remember or may not, but Hans was a Germanic type who was always very brusque but funny all the way through. And finally in his search, Bob finds Hans, the professor, and says, please, I have been following you all of this time. I've been trying to find out. You seem to have it so together. What is the meaning of life? And Conrad says, well, you know, I've thought about it a long time. I have taught a long time, and I have finally come to the conclusion. It's all bunk. (laughs) And so Bob spends the rest of the episode trying to figure out the meaning of life. If it's all bunk, as Ecclesiastes seems to be saying, if it's all difficult, as Camus seems to be saying, if it's all... Bunk, as Conrad seems to be saying, isn't that enough to make you want to sing? (laughs) 
Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friend, let's break out the booze and have a ball. It's just enough to believe that dying with the most toys is winning. And it really isn't such a bad idea. Certainly without a sense of, divine, of the divine, the answer may very well be yes. But even so, does that give us license to tear down our house in order to fuel our oven in order to protect us from the cold? With the question comes the answer, it's not a sustainable way to live one's life, don't you think? Yet we try to do it anyway, subtly and in not so subtle ways. Now it must be noted that Ecclesiastes assumes the presence of God and in so knowing can only assume that there must be something more. Niebuhr talks about this presence of God and the concept, and he actually seems to be a follower of Ecclesiastes because Reinhold Niebuhr, as a theologian through the early and middle part of the last century, viewed pride as being the most significant sin and really the root of original sin. Somehow I flipped two pages. <laughs> Pride causes us to act in unsustainable ways by ignoring the needs and the concerns of others. Now, is it true that we must have God in our lives to understand this element of pride? Nelson Mandela is a man that actually lives without God. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't have time for religion. But he is a man of principle, and he believes in the African tradition of Ubuntu. And the African concept of Ubuntu is that people are empowered by other people. Our humanity is only expressed through the humanity of others. One cannot be human and alone it is in community that our humanity is manifest. Jesus, I think, would agree with this concept, with this assessment, although expanding the relationship to that as one with God. But how we relate to each other, the manner and level of attention we give each other, the depth of our relationships, and the level of genuine care and concern we have for each other is what is most important. Now, Mandela suggests that at least an element of our attention and our activities are related in part based on our principles. And as I said, he is a man of principle. For Mandela, his principle was singular. Overthrow apartheid and create a new nation of non-racial democracy, one person, one vote. Everything else, he says, is tactics. Jesus, the principles were, of course, the great and second commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and with all your strength. And the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We cannot operate to the exclusion of one without the other. 
In speaking with a friend at a cafe a few days ago, she asked me what I had learned from reading Mandela's Law, and I mentioned that Principal defined Mandela's actions in almost everything he did. She posited that most people don't really define their principles in such a way as to live their life intentionally according to them. And I am afraid, given my experience, that she may be right. I was talking last week to Lloyd and Annette about Nicaragua and what was going on in the tensions there. And Nicaragua has seemed to heal itself on some levels, and on other levels there seem, still seems to be some dissension and some concern that things are still very tentative. Am I correct? Now, how is it that Mandela was able to make South Africa much more cohesive? It's because he understood the ability to reconcile. Now, for myself, I have had doubts about the presence of the divine. I've spent my life kind of going through this. For me, the greatest commandment that I could have, apart from what Jesus had said there, is the Abrahamic covenant. You shall be... I shall be your God and you shall be my people and your lineage shall survive. It is a practical application that helps address the self-interest, even if you don't really believe in God. But that's changing. It's begun to change with me on two different occasions that stand out particularly. Now, I have never preached anything I don't believe from the pulpit. And so, on Sunday, Easter Sunday, 1993, I was supposed to speak on the resurrection, as you can assume. It was a time when I was in my deepest level of doubt. I was ready to give up the church. I was ready to give up preaching. I was on the verge of leaving because I realized I had no spiritual motivation, that I was in it for the recognition as I became, began to climb the ladder of, of uh, conference recognition and conference positions. So I was in it for the wrong reasons, and I quit. But things are never as cut and dried as they seem, that as my faith was going down, there was something in my faith that was coming up. And it was a mystical and profound experience that Easter Sunday morning when I finally came up with a sermon idea. I am reminded occasionally now, 17 years later, that I didn't really preach that sermon. My daughter had been born 17 days before. And so I held her in my arms in front of the congregation and talked about new life, and renewal, because I knew in the birth of my child there was something more than vanity. There was something more that said you can love unconditionally your child. So at 17 days old, Liz joined me in up my arms and we preached about new life and the constant resurrection of hope that we celebrate on Easter morning. And in the intervening years, the 17 years in between, I am reminded of it continually when my daughter joins me at that church because even today, there are people that remember, I remember when your father held you and you were in his arms. 
Life is a human and experience filled with mystical moments. If we allow ourselves to be open to them, if we can empty ourselves of me first thinking and give ourselves as we would give a newborn child without condition and without expectation of something in return. I came to Epworth on a Sunday about 10 months ago, empty, searching. I had lost everything. I'd burnt in the oven all of my firewood. Two businesses gone, my income, my home my significant other, my community. My ex-wife, the mother of my daughter and 40-year-old best friend, 40-year best friend took me in, not wanting my daughter to have a dad who was living on the streets. One night, I tossed and turned in bed until I finally realized I couldn't sleep, and so I put on my sweats and I opened the door and I sat on the steps going downstairs. I came to my senses when I finally realized I had been trying to figure out where best to park before I jump off the bridge. I came to my senses when I realized I couldn't do that to my daughter. And I decided my legacy to her had to be to continue and to celebrate life. The next morning I made a call to a friend got a referral and got some help. Then I came to my church here, sitting right behind the Schweitzers, and said, I'm home. I found a new community, and I rediscovered my faith. We don't know the stories of each person sitting here in the congregation, as open as this congregation is, there are more pains and more suffering and more needing to come together, and I have found no place better than a community like Epworth. As we celebrate communion today, it is that community that I celebrate. Because in loving the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength and with all your soul, you can only love and be loved by people in your experience. Communion to me is not about right or wrong. It's not about pride or humility. It's about trying to understand what it is to get it right, what it is to be in right relation. And understanding the human understanding of right and wrong, there are few absolutes, not because it's all relative, but with, because we are not perfect, we are not God, we are human beings. And for that I give thanks to God. Let us pray. Gracious Divine One, allow us to be open in our frailty and exposing of our hearts and unconditionally loving of those around us.
These things we pray in the name of your Son, the ultimate love shown by you, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Upper United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. Worship services are Sunday at 10 a.m. at 1953 Hopkins Street in Berkeley. Childcare is provided during worship. Visit our website at www.epworthberkeley.org. Oh,